So the music that you heard before the service this morning and that was just playing just now uh, was recorded live during the first week of January 2019 at Passion 2019. Passion is, for lack of a better term, a conference. Sounds boring, doesn't it, for college students. It was my privilege to tag along this year with a group of students from our local body and from the area uh, to our nation's capital, where 6,000 were in attendance at just one of four venues across our nation. Anyone who's ever visited Grand Canyon National Park will tell you that you just can't appreciate the scale until you've seen it for yourself, right? Well, that's kind of how I feel whenever I try to describe this experience. Not merely in terms of size, but much more in terms of consequence. Picture, if you will, 40,000 18 to 25-year-olds giving up several of the last days of their winter break to gather together with other Christ followers for worship and the Word. The media, and even many Christians, would have you to believe that God is dead on college campuses, that the rising generation has no category for faith, that they are more focused on self-gratification than any generation ever before. And that nothing could be any less relevant to them than a God who defines sin and judges it. While that description may be true of millions of lost students, this is by no means a generation beyond hope. When Pastor Chris outlined his vision for this series for us in a staff meeting and assigned this particular topic to me, I could not help but remember a sermon delivered at Passion 2019 by Matt Chandler. He spoke from the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, exploring the familiar story of the woman at the well. I would strongly urge you to track down that message. It's well worth your time and study. While this morning's topic will take us to a number of passages in both the Older and the Newer Testaments, uh, this text of John 4 will provide our starting point for today's message. God treasures genuine worship. John's Gospel, fourth chapter, beginning at verse 1. Would you please stand with me in honor of his word? I will be reading from the English Standard Version, John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples... He left Judea and departed for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, "'Give me a drink.' For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, Sir, 
You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to drink water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come to me. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. (laughs) Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of God. Father, you have called us to worship. You have created us to worship. You have given us new life so that we may do so. Speak to us, Lord, this morning through your word. Apply it to each heart as there is need. And we all need you. May it not be that any would leave here today unchanged. Search us, know us, teach us to see ourselves as you see us, as sinners and then as children whom you love. We ask these things of God our Father in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. This passage, this passage uh, provides us with one of many glimpses of um, what I call Jesus the Evangelist. Um, others are similar. The rich young ruler comes to mind. At the risk of sounding heretical, I would observe that in terms of how we've been taught uh, evangelism ought to go, um, Jesus was a terrible evangelist. Here we, have, here we have a woman who's receptive to his opening remarks. She's picking up what he's laying down. She's ready to check the box, sign the card. He, he seems to have missed the session on closing the deal, right? All he had to do was say, every head bowed and every eye closed. No one's looking around. 
right? Just pray something like this. God, I know I'm a sinner. But it is at this exact moment when she's ready to receive what he's putting out that he chooses to confront her with her sexual immorality. I mean, talk about a wet blanket, right? What a buzzkill. Jesus had no tolerance for easy believism. In, in her mind, to her way of thinking, history and tradition were the things that stood in her way. But Jesus knows how important it is to confront the actual condition that holds her behind an impenetrable barrier to fellowship with God. Her problem is not her Samaritan blood. Her problem is sin. And when she tries to dodge the question with a compliment and then makes inquiries about traditions of worship, totally randomly, his response shouts that her problem is not one of location, but of position. At issue is not an estranged descent from Jacob. At issue is her descent from Adam. But since she's raised the question, Jesus responds with an earth-shattering revelation of the ultimate solution to that age-old witch-mountain debate, saying, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This statement, while it certainly sounds revolutionary to this woman, is actually fundamental to the quality and character of worship that God has always sought. Sadly, the record of scripture speaks strongly to our propensity to get it wrong. We're really, really great We do a great job of getting it wrong, don't we? We're good at something. Uh, As a matter of caution, and because the Lord has chosen to include uh, so many examples of this in Scripture, it's important and helpful for us to take a look at what the Word says about the worship that God despises. The earliest example that comes to mind for me is found in Genesis 4. Here we find two brothers who bring their sacrifices before the Lord. Cain is a farmer, and Abel keeps sheep. And so Cain brings an offering of fruit, and Abel brings the firstborn of his flock. Sounds reasonable, right? Well, verse 4 says otherwise. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now, lest we side with Cain on this matter, the text records his inappropriate response to God's rejection, his disdain for Cain's offering. He has anger towards God. He has jealousy toward his brother. And ultimately, he murders him. Now, whatever we may think about the substance of his offering, two things are abundantly clear. Cain's heart was not right before God, and he knew that his offering was unacceptable. 
Furthermore, he had deluded himself into believing that he was in a better position to know what was pleasing and acceptable to the Lord than the Lord himself did. He knew better than God. But God hates deluded worship. A second example hides away in 1 Samuel 15, 1-33. That reference is in your listening guide, and I would encourage you to study it later. But it is a scene that always flashes to my mind when someone asks me, you know, what's the meaning of worship, right? In this passage, the Lord gives explicit instructions to Saul through Samuel as to what they are to do to Amalek. And it is brutal. He says, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Wow. So what does Saul do? He comes up with a better plan. He disobeys the clear and direct command of God, lies about what he has done, rationalizes that his disobedience is, we might call it, new obedience. (laughs) And then he blames his men when Samuel strips away his every defense. This passage contains two of my favorite little nuggets of Scripture in the Old Testament. Saul returns from the battle and he says, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Can't you just hear Saul's gears of self-justification turning in the silence? Most remarkably, he even spares the evil Amalekite king Agag. This story culminates with a verse that in my mind defines worship. Verse 33, Samuel says to Agag, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. God treasures obedience, but he despises deluded worship. What other worship does God despise? God despises hypocritical worship. Isaiah is jam-packed with descriptions of hypocritical worship. Uh, Isaiah 29, 13, actually verse 14 as well, reads, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. <laughs> wonder. With wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Fast forward to the New Testament. Can you say scribes and Pharisees? Matthew fifteen seven through 9, Jesus is speaking, You hypocrites! 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Hypocritical worship focuses all of its energy into satisfying perceived demands by outward expression while refusing to deal with the contradiction of an unredeemed, unrepentant, unyielding heart. It is the very definition of cultural Christianity, and you are swimming in it. I do not exaggerate when I say that I fear that millions of self-described fundamental evangelical Christians are in one way or another captive to this pharisaical spirit. There is, listen, there's no shortage of people who are saved on the outside. Remember the woman at the well? She was all ready to try something new, to discuss the theology of geography, but Jesus wanted to deal with her heart because God treasures repentance. But he despises hypocritical worship. Finally, it really comes as no surprise, this is the easy one, comes as no surprise that God despises displaced worship. Uh, idolatry. God despises displaced worship. As if God's injunction against the Amalekites is not sufficient evidence for us, let's consider Exodus 34, 13 to 16. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. God hates idolatry. God despises displaced worship. Now, if God despises displaced, hypocritical, and deluded worship, it stands to reason that the worship he desires And as we read in John's gospel, the worshipers that God seeks will be of opposite character and quality to those despicable counterfeits of true worship. I've compiled a list for us of five statements just to help us explore what true worship is. Now, Scripture provides sufficient material to develop each one of these points into a whole separate sermon. But for now, I will settle with stating them and leaving them to you for further study. The first derives from the first part of the Ten Commandments, which we find in Exodus chapter 20, of course. Verses 3 through 7 says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Worship is an attitude of ultimate respect and of undiluted reverence toward God that is sinful to render to any created being or thing. Worship is an attitude of ultimate respect and of undiluted reverence toward God that is sinful to render to any created being or thing. Worship starts with a transformed heart. Before it can be expressed outwardly, true worship flows up from within. Like the living water that Jesus offered to the woman at the well, it is the pure product of a purified channel. Next, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, there's definitely context to this passage that applies it first to questions about meat offered to idols, which is beautifully ironic considering uh, the context of this message. But this verse is really a touchstone for virtually all that the New Testament has to say about the, the walk of a Christian. Amen? But here it is, expanded for our nourishment. While its expression may take the form of speech, song, service, submission, and sacrifice. The object of our adoration is always our sovereign Lord. My challenge to you here is to think of worship as a verb. Mrs. Harvey will be proud of me. More specifically, a transitive verb. <laughs> Is that right? Okay. <laughs> you never get over fear of an English teacher. <laughs> I've always, she, might, she might still have access to my permanent record. Not even go to Greater Beckley. <laughs> She'll call Baptist High and mess me up. <laughs> my challenge is to think of worship as a verb. As we've seen, in order for worship to be genuine and treasured by God, he alone must be the object, the target, if you will, of our adoration. As he extols the supremacy of Christ in his letter to the church at Colossae. Oh, what a letter. A lot of us are feasting there right now. Amen. As he extols the supremacy of Christ in his letter to the church at Colossae, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
Then in chapter 3, Paul delivers a, a so what challenge that I will leave you to review in your own time with him. That passage in chapter 3 culminates in verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Somebody say amen. (laughs) True worship involves a turning aside from all other allegiances, affections, and associations in favor of a singular focus on the supremacy of the Lord. And that really is key. That really is key because it gives us an anchor point from which we can guard against drifting. And so what does that look like practically? How do we, under the authority of the word, monitor our own motivations? How do we avoid the trap of living to satisfy some man-made tradition of conduct or expression? We must use the tools that he's given us, namely the word and the spirit. Have you ever noticed that the two are really presented side by side in Hebrews 4, 12 to 13? Listen to this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. His spirit does that. The Holy Spirit does that. God treasures his word. But the Pharisees had his word and they made a mess of it. What's to stop us from doing the same? We yield to the Spirit. God treasures prayer. So back to our anchor point, the supremacy of the Savior. In practical terms, worship is a matter of priority. Our modern English word worship finds its origin in the old English notion of worthship. God alone is worthy of worship because he alone is worthy of receiving first place in every area of our lives. Do you remember Abel? He brought the firstborn of his flock. What does this look like for us in the 21st century? I would like to suggest four areas that we can use to evaluate uh, how we're doing at giving God first priority in our lives. The first is schedule. Schedule. Now, I could have said time, but that would invariably cause us to think in terms of measured time, amounts of time. But that misses the point. When you plan your week, what comes first? What slots are already filled as non-negotiable. You're here now, so someone might be inclined to guess that meeting with other believers on a Sunday morning is a non-negotiable for you. But what happens when there's a conflict? Today is February the 3rd. What's special about today? Say it with me. It's Abigail's birthday. It's Ab- 
Yes, it is. It's Abigail's birthday. And it's the Super Bowl. <laughs> Super Bowl Sunday. Okay, no problem. It's like, what time is it? 8 o'clock or something like that? What if the Super Bowl were scheduled for 3 p.m.? 1 p.m. 11 o'clock. Okay, now, warning, now I'm meddling. <laughs> what about vacation? When you plan a vacation away from home, do you actually look forward to finding a local body to join with for fellowship and the word? God treasures fellowship. Now somebody is saying, ha, I don't travel on Sunday. <laughs> Good, you get a gold star. It's just, you better not accept it. <laughs> You'd better turn it down. How about your daily quiet time with the Lord? Are those moments marked as reserved? Are they carved out of your busy schedule? Or are they scrounged out from the cracks of your spare time? I'm meddling with me too. The second is finances. If it is our desire to worship God through giving, are we demonstrating our commitment to the supremacy of the Savior? Again, I want you to think not in terms of amounts. Somebody says, Phew. <laughs> because we could easily be deluded in this area. Listen, with a big enough paycheck, you can easily pay all of your bills, everything off. If you've got a big enough paycheck, you could pay everything off. You could put the leftovers in the plate and be the biggest donor of any local church. But if you haven't given your first fruits, have you shown his supremacy? What if, listen to me, what if our very first thought on payday was, yes, I get to contribute something to the Lord's work on Sunday morning. What a blessing. May I challenge you to think that way? God treasures faithful giving. Now the third and fourth areas where we need to give God first priority, I do, you do too, are very closely connected, but I think they're distinct. They're kind of like two sides of a coin. The first is affection. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind, all of your strength. No one understands that to mean that we're plumb out of love for anyone else. For some reason, this one is kind of easier for us to conceptualize. But I think it's no less difficult to live out. What gives you joy? A day with the grandkids? A strenuous workout? A slightly less strenuous game of basketball? That is, if you're in the stands. <laughs> no problem. If you feel free to find joy in those things, no problem. Unless our ultimate satisfaction and joy are not found in Christ. Finally, focus. See how that's connected with affection? Think of focus as like short-term affection, the short-term companion of affection. Lord willing, tomorrow morning you will wake from sleep. A new day lies before you. 
What's the first thing you will reach for? For many of us, it'll be a smartphone. A pile of notifications will beckon you. Which will be the first to receive your focus? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, your Bible app. Before you pick up that device, understand this. The whole world wants your attention. What if, what if, before we picked up that phone, we paused and exercised our exclusive direct line to the undisputed, glorious, sovereign Lord of the universe? Even before you open your eyes, start with three simple words Good morning, Lord. Good morning, Lord. Thank you for a new day. Help me to yield to you. This whole world wants my attention. Now. But I want to stop and thank you for loving me. You. You, Lord, are first. Would you tune my heart to sing your grace? Help me to treasure you above all else today. And what if that wasn't just tomorrow? What if that was how we started every day? Ultimately, Worship is a life lived to the glory of God from a heart that treasures him above all else. That is genuine worship. And God treasures genuine worship. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we confess that these things, as beautiful as they are, are hard for us. You've called us to be something other than we are. You've called us to a new way of living. You've called us to put you first. But you've not done so without giving us what we need to live according to your will. We love you, Lord. The whole world wants our attention. The whole world wants us to speak its worth. But today, 
we've been reminded that you are the only one who is worthy. We love you, Lord. Help us to worship you genuinely, to live our lives to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.